the Pinball Network is online. Launching Final Round Pinball Podcast. Player versus player and player versus machine. Welcome to the final round. I can't believe you're still listening, but thanks. I'm Jeff Teolis. My name's Martin Robbins. Welcome everybody to the final round pinball podcast. How are you, Jeff? I'm good. You know, that is the benefit of being on the Pinball Network. People download our show whether they want us or not, and they're like, oh, shit, I'm listening. I might as well listen now. (laughs) Yes. So, you're welcome, everybody that really is listening to the Pinball Show. I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't talking about our show. I'm just saying, you know, people listen to ours and they got to get the other shitty shows. I mean, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We're going to get fired. You're not kidding. Everyone really is listening to the other shows and we are just the stuff that they get as a bonus. We are the, if you remember, you 2 releasing that album on Apple iTunes without everybody's consent. That is what Final Round is. We're the equivalent of that. People were so pissed off about that and I was trying to figure out why. It was a free album, I guess. Maybe you didn't like the band or maybe you didn't want it. But back then, could you delete it? Was that the problem? You could delete it, but it still appeared in your library and people were just sort of, uh, I think it was merely probably the the anti-U2 people. And when I say anti-U2, I don't think really people can be necessarily anti-U2. I think people are anti-Bono because apparently he's an absolute douche canoe. So I think that's really what it was. It was like, how dare you just put your face on my (laughs) Apple iTunes? But the funny thing is, I've got to tell you, two days ago, I was in my car and it, it hooked up to my, my phone and it started playing this U2 song, which I'd never heard of. And for some reason, it was that album. So I don't know when that got released, but I the, the first time I've listened to that album was two days ago. It was the Songs of the Innocence that they kind of gave you back in 2014. And I actually didn't mind it. There were some good songs on there, Raised by Wolves. I listened to it once in a while and... Uh Anyway, you're giving it to me for free, just like this podcast. Just take it. You don't like it, throw it out. Well, you guys can say, whether you like it or not, suck it because you've got it. How have you been the last two weeks? Um, Look, I've been very busy the last two weeks. I'm going to probably leave it at that because I think by the time this airs, or maybe a little bit after, people will know why I've been very busy. I've been very busy. Jeff, how about you? I assume a Netflix special? What's going Correct. on? Correct. Oh, oh. That's absolutely. Yeah. It's probably something about that. Yeah. You know, I'd like to give you some great story that uh, this and this has happened, but really not a lot. I mean, I delivered one of the reach arounds to one of our winners and they're going to be joining us in the second half of the show. Ooh, who could that be? Who could that be? Exclusive. But before we get to that guest, we have our main guest, if you will. Most people in the industry... Really, really like this guy and his family and everything he's done in the pinball community. We're going to try to disprove all of that, but I don't think we'll be able to because he's pretty stand up. He is Charlie Emery from Spooky Pinball and he joins us right now. Hey, Charlie, how are you? Hello, hello. Welcome from Benton, Wisconsin. How's everything over in Benton at the moment? Not really warm, sadly. Like we had one 
week where we got mid-60s about a month ago, and we haven't seen it since. So, <laughs> good thing we work indoors. Now, I know that we, we're going to talk about a lot of things about you and Spooky, but just speaking of that, aren't you, like, moving or have you moved? Uh, <laughs> okay, in a nutshell, we, uh, we started at one room, in one room in the Benton Business Incubator eight years ago. And when we started building America's Most Haunted, we rented another room thinking, wow, this is as good as it'll ever get. Two years later, we built our own 60 by 90 shop. A year after that, we outgrew that, added a warehouse. And uh, then this spring, we bought a bigger building across the street. And we thought this is two stories. It's bigger than our old shop by more than double the square footage, you know, when you count the up and down. And we've outgrown that. So we're adding on to it now. Bigger and better. But I guess that's the whole thing with the spooky factory, the games themselves, the number that have been sold. It just keeps growing and growing. And this once small company is not so small anymore. I mean, the expansions that you mentioned, but also the staff too. In the recent years, we've seen Eric Priebke come on board and Bowen Karen's helping with the rules. Bigger factory. Does that mean more people, more machines per week? It absolutely does. Basically, when we moved into the new building, it it had a lot of the equipment that we were already using anyway uh, with a partner company, and we just kind of teamed up and bought that. And it greatly expanded our capability, but the building wasn't necessarily laid out the way we would have wanted for production, and we absolutely made it work on Rick and Morty. We're very proud of the fact that when we launched Rick and Morty, we told everybody 18 months to deliver all 750 games, which we at that time we had hoped we would sell, not knowing what would happen. But even with losing almost two months because of shutdowns due to COVID and everything, we've, we're actually going to beat that 18-month schedule. So that, that tells you that we've already hired more. We used to joke uh, about being the third largest employer in Benton, Wisconsin. And uh, weirdly enough, we're now the second largest. So we're behind only the school. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we, we, we honestly have uh, right about 30 employees. We might actually have gone over that this week. We just hired two more people. Uh, we hired an electronics engineer slash programmer, so we even have more help in that regard. We still have Eric on hand kind of helping us out with some stuff, and we'll see where you know he wants to go in the future. He's only a few hours away from us, but uh, obviously did a great job on Rick and Morty. Couldn't be happier with his performance, and uh, yeah, man, it's... It just keeps growing, and it's always been a steady, slow growth. We're very proud of that, and this, you know, the new expansion really is no different. We just decided we, if you're going to take the time and effort to train all these people, you better give them something to do. So obviously, we plan on upping our numbers again on our next game launch. So really looking forward to that. Marty, he's going after the schools. What I'm hearing, you know, Alice Cooper had a song called "Schools Out." Benton schools, not the number one employer. Look out, Spooky's on their way, Marty. <laughs> <laughs> well, we passed the bank, so. <laughs> well, so just on that, and I know you've talked about it before, but I would just love to hear your thoughts now that we're into, like, well into production of Rick and Morty. You limited it to 750 units, and a lot of people were like, why would you limit it? You would sell twice as many. Tell us why you wanted to keep it at 750. Uh, does anybody remember a few years ago when I said something like, uh, we never want to do more than 500 games in a year? I remember. <laughs> uh, Rick and Morty broke that. 
obviously. We thought, you know, and again, at the time, the most games we'd ever built was 550 total nuclear annihilations. And so to jump up to 750 is... It, it's not a small feat. I mean, for a large company, it's it's nothing to add a couple hundred games. But for a, a company the size of ours and, and the, you know, a town our size, it, it seemed a little daunting at the time. But, you know, it, it's, it's great and it's wonderful that we've managed to gain some traction in the pinball world. But we've also managed to gain some traction locally. So it makes it easier to get good workers and get, uh, you know, people that want to come in for the long haul and stick with you. And, you know, we, we try to take care of everybody and do the best we can in that regard. But yeah, I mean, it, it's all kind of a, a natural growth process where the bigger we get locally, the more the word spreads. And, and we still get a ton of people in this area that are, you're making what? You know, they they still think we're fixing old games. They don't understand that new games get made. And, and then they come in and just lose their mind and ask for jobs. So it's it's been pretty pretty wild the last couple of years just to kind of see the the reputation in the area grow and more and more people actually know we're here now and they they kind of seek us out which is is really really good you know it's it's very flattering to us to be considered a you know a good solid employer in the area and yeah man i hope we can just keep that rolling and you know keep everybody employed so that's always the goal man Charlie, forget the expansion on your current facility. Go back to that school, make it part of a co-op program, get them manufacturing like a shop class or something like that. It'll speed things up. I'm just saying, click, click, click. I mean, you could be the king of that. I'm half, I'm half joking. Like, I'm like, you know, couldn't they kind of do something? The, the high school kids? You're not far off. We actually have every year, uh, we have an entire class of of kids come into the the shop and they take a tour and kind of see what we do and it's they call it like careers day and they they take you around the area and they show you different things but because we do what we do and rick and morty is a natural draw obviously but everything we've ever done has kind of drawn kids towards us like you make toys and uh you know some of them have wound up working for us after high school you know most go off to college and do their thing and and some do that and still come back to us it's really kind of a neat process but you're not wrong yeah But what Marty was saying, too, about that number 750, which was once 500, and it was less even before that, it just keeps growing and growing, you sold out immediately with Rick and Morty. When you look on the secondary market and seeing Rick and Morty's being sold, as you're still making them, do you think, okay, we played it safe, we underestimated, it's going to happen anyway? What are your thoughts when you see the demand much bigger than the supply? Um, It's a bit of a mixed... It's it, I, I do have mixed feelings on it, you know, um, and again, when we launched Rick and Morty, we knew it was going to do well because of the theme and because of Scott Denisi and because of everybody that was involved with it. But as a company our size, you don't imagine that you're going to sell 750 games in four hours. That's we weren't even entertaining that kind of idea. You know, we were hoping that in the first two weeks, which was what the, the fan club was all about, it would give people an opportunity to get in and buy before the general public and, you know, kind of cater to the hardcore pinball fans a bit, give people a way to feel like they're part of the company or or part of the family and make it something special. But we had no idea that 750 people were going to join the fan club and just buy it all out. It was a ridiculously good problem to have. And I'm telling you, in, in the eight years that we've been in business, I've never experienced another day like that. And knock on wood, I hope we get to do something like that again here, maybe coming up soon. We'll see. 
But yeah, you feel like, yeah, you definitely left a little bit on the table. But at the same time, when the secondary market is strong for the game, it kind of gives buyers confidence going into your next title, which is you know pretty much just common sense for a business that's that's good for you going down the road. And again, when you make 750 games for the first time, you have to figure out how to do it. You know, you have a pretty good indication of what's going to be expected after doing you know 500 or 550. But every bit of growth is always a little bit daunting. It's intimidating. The more mouths you have to feed, the the harder you have to work, the better you need to be. And right now, we're just doing everything we possibly can to make just to make sure that our product going forward is the best it possibly can be and comparable to everyone else's, if not better. That's the goal. So, yeah, it, it, it's a tough road to hoe. I mean, you got to be careful and, you know, we don't want to overreach. And at the same time, you've, you know, the old saying around here, you got to make hay while the sun's shining. So we're doing everything we can to kind of keep that balance. So I'm going to just go a weird sort of tangent here, but I'm going to go almost like cinema right so we we had the things that go bump in the night the the spooky pinball story i don't know how many years ago that was that seemed like maybe four years ago is that right yeah it seems like a million miles away right well it does seem like such a long way away and it's now a different world because really the, the the story arc of that was pinball is really hard it was it was challenging for you and it was a, you know, a triumph at the end. You know, it, it's all great. It's fantastic. Cut to now four years later. What is it that you have actively done to keep the success of, of Spooky Pinball to now like cut to today, 750 machines been sold? How does that happen? Um, In 10 words or less, please. 10 words or less. <laughs> um, okay, you can expand. I think I can narrow it down to one. Um, honesty. We own up to our mistakes. We take what we do well, and we try to expand on that. And no, you know, when we did the documentary, and, and again, it wasn't us that did it. It was some producers that had come to us, Dana and Joel Reeves. And I said no for like three months and then was glad that we did it after the fact. You know, it was, it was kind of strange shooting that for like a year and having them follow you around and going to Lawrence's and everywhere you went, they went and it was kind of kind of strange, but yeah, it really only told kind of the beginning, which was the scariest time. Don't get me wrong. So I'm kind of glad that that's all documented and out there now. But since then, yeah, it, it, it's just been steady growth, being honest with our customers. Like I said, it, taking what we do well and trying to build on that and learning your strengths and weaknesses, which, you know, fortunately, as a company, we've we've been allowed the time to do that. And that's important. You know, it's it's kind of like being an artist back in the 70s where you make a record and, you know, it, it does pretty good, but it's not great. And then, you know, you get you get time to develop. And that's, I think, really what's gotten us to where we are today. That and a lot of really good people. I mean, nobody does this alone. I certainly do not to watch you know, people like Scott Denisi and Ben Hack and everybody, and then, you know, Jerry Sellenberg at Multimorphic when we need, all these people have come into our lives at different points in time and we still all talk and communicate and everybody gets along and, you know, we're doing the absolute best we can with what we're given and, and again, trying to expand on what we do well. And uh, I just, yeah, I'm nervous and I'm excited for everybody to see what we're actually working on right now because I think you're really going to see all those little things I mentioned kind of come together and really take us to where we want to be as a company. So you, you sort of indicated it 
before, the sort of rumours are that we are going to see something in the next couple of months? Well, I, I don't want to put a specific date on it, but obviously uh, spring, summer of this year, we're going to run out of Rick and Morty. So, yeah, I guess we better have something else ready. <laughs> huh? Get something ready. If we're going to keep everybody working, yeah, we better have something, uh, something in the pipeline. And of course we do. And it's the most complete team effort, I think, that Spooky Pinball has ever done. My fingerprints are on it, but I am certainly not the lead designer. And it's really kind of dumbfounding to see this thing come together the way it has. It, it is, I think it's a little bit unique. You know, in pinball, it's, it's always there's one guy and everybody helps him. And in this case, it really wasn't the situation at all. It was everybody got their input and, and it wasn't the case of too many chefs spoiling the soup. It just kept getting better and things came and went. And if it didn't work, we threw it out and we it was nice to actually have a little bit of breathing room. This is the first time that, you know, when Rick and Morty sold out in four hours, it bought us 18 months worth of work, guaranteed employment. And we'd never really had that before. So it gave us time as a team to kind of regroup, reorganize and, you know, learn from our past successes and mistakes and make the best possible product ever. And I, I, well, I know Scott Denisi has mentioned a hundred times, you know, that my worst habit is I'd never say no to a designer. Like I, you don't know, throw in whatever you want. We did that and then some in this game. And I really, really, really can't wait for people to see it because it's unique. It's different. It shoots smooth and beautiful. Uh, our games kind of have a reputation of being really tough. This might hurt that a little bit it's a little bit easier to shoot but man is it different it's so unique and i am just i'm really excited about it do we know the designer you've met some of them <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah it's it, like i said it's not necessarily one person it's it's a complete team effort which is it's been a unique experience because we've never done things that way and i'm not sure that anybody else has either so uh i'm excited for people to see the results of that is this the hybrid with Chicago Gaming Company we're talking about? Oh, no. No, no, no. This is it's an all different. spooky product. Yep. This is a completely different game. Yeah, no. Um, we announced on our podcast several months ago. Boy, I don't know how long ago it actually was. But yeah, we are we get along very well with Doug Duba and everybody over at Chicago Gaming. And and uh, we had a Ben Heck design that Ben kind of wanted to finish. And we absolutely wanted to finish. And uh, that's that's kind of been a partnership there, too. So Helping them a little bit, it definitely helps us, and it's just good for it's good for all of us. It's good for pinball guys. Come on, two <laughs> pinball companies working together. Does anybody do that? Well, they do now. <laughs> but, yeah. No, I'm really proud of that. You know, it's and that's to me the way it should be. Is it, this is a very small pond. We all know each other. Uh, if one company can help another, or vice versa, you know, two companies helping each other grow. Why not do it? And uh, I'm very happy that we got Ben's game where, you know, he had some engineering help and stuff to finish up some things that uh, we didn't have time to do while we were working on our game. And he's kind of doing his own thing there and he gets a lot of creative freedom. And, you know, Ben's a creative, strange individual. So, yeah, I think what he's doing is really, really cool. And, you know, it's timing's good. His game will come out a little bit later. Ours will come out a little bit sooner and everybody's happy. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy about all that. When Spooky first came out, I mean, obviously, Spooky, it's all about horror and horror themes and all that, because that's your passion really is. You, you, you love horror. And that's kind of how it started with the first couple of machines. Then you sort of branched out a bit. I mean, obviously, Total Nuclear Annihilation was a, let's call it a happy surprise. It just came to you 
Scott said, can you make my machine? Or you probably said to him, I want to make your machine. And then it happened. It's it's really different to the horror brand. You've obviously had some other side ones like Domino's and Jetsons as well, but they're sort of commission games. Then we had yeah. Rick and Morty, which also isn't horror. I'm, I guess I'm, what I'm saying is, is horror still the overarching theme for Spooky? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, even with Rick and Morty, it's a science fiction, horror and science fiction to me. If you look at the, I'm sitting in my TV room right now, my shelves are loaded with horror and, and sci-fi. That's their first cousins, if not brothers. So to me, that's all kind of one group because anything with aliens and monsters and all that stuff is just a blast to me. And Rick and Morty, honestly, the, the writing on that show is some of the best science fiction writing in the history of television, oh, in my opinion. Hands down. It, hands as down. funny as it is, it's just brilliantly it's written at the same time. So, but yeah, I mean, Spooky Pinball is there on purpose. It's it's in my soul. I mean, everything, on our whole house is nothing but monster stuff from the basement all the way to the you know to the upstairs so it that's never going to go away and and tna even is a science fiction theme you know well i do agree about the science fiction and horror kind of being linked they're cousins if you will but what i noticed with rick and morty and tna was the humor in the games and you might ask well, where is it in tna well it's when you see the mysteries and things like Lion Man come up or just some of the different messages, there's tons of humor, obviously, in Rick and Morty. We don't see a lot of humor in pinball machines or certainly humor-themed based pinball machines, and I've always wondered why not. I think there's a huge, huge void in that. Does humor become stale? I don't know. You know, last time I played Attack from Mars, I still laugh at the callouts. The same with Medieval Madness and things like that. Deadpool's got some pretty good callouts. Of course, Rick and Morty's callouts are leaps and bounds <laughs> of any any I've ever heard. Humor seems to work for me. And, you know, here's the thing with Spooky. You've got a set amount of games, whether it's 750, maybe it's 1,000 for the next one. You don't have to sell thousands and thousands of them. You just have to, with the fan club and everything else, just sell this certain limited amount. And like you said, that also helps you propel for the next 18 months when you know you've got work. So can Spooky take a risk on something like that? As far as you mean doing something humorous? Can Spooky take risks on something that might not be horror or science? Maybe it's humor. Absolutely. And, and oh man, I love to... <laughs> How do I put this? The hardest I've ever made Rob Zombie laugh. We had a game backstage and he was at a like a VIP meet and greet deal. And the game was being played by fans and, and Rob was taking pictures with people and he's like, I don't remember saying that. And I'm like, you do know that there's like three lines of you saying roadhouse dialogue in this game, right? And like his band just lost it. And then I look and Rob was kind of tilting his head back and he's just laughing and he's like, I was seriously just reading the script and just, it, but anyway, it was, the moment was hilarious <laughs> and we've always, even if the game didn't call for it, we've managed to slip a little humor in there. Alice Cooper definitely has a lot of little tongue-in-cheek kind of Tales from the Crypt humor. Rob There's Zombie not, is loaded with it. Sid Haig's lines in there are hilarious. They're extremely vulgar, but they're funnier than hell. Charlie, there's nothing funny about necrophilia. All right? That is a serious, serious... Uh, are you talking about Cold Ethel? Yes. Cold Ethel? I love the dead. There's a couple in there. I would like, uh, you know, he runs around with a rag doll on stage while he's singing that. Uh, I honestly did have one customer kind of berate me over that. I've been an Alice Cooper fan my whole life, and I don't approve of Necrophilia. And I'm like, he wrote that song in 1975. You've been a fan your whole life. You'd think you'd be used to that one by now. <laughs> and it's a joke. You know, 
that tongue is firmly in cheek on that song. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it's funny. So then that that was for for me I remember that was the first time we saw Bo and Karen's really put his stamp on a machine. We've seen it since. How does that for you going from all hands on deck, it's you and what you've got to do, to now having to rely on other people to produce these machines? Uh, define produce the machines. Well, get them, like, we're talking art, we're talking rules, code, mechanics, assembly, everything that goes into a pinball machine. Like, really, it was you and, I don't know, a handful of people when you did America's Most Haunted. You've now got 30 people. How's that adjustment for you going from being in control to now having control through a lot of other people? You know, it's kind of funny because when you talk about rules and stuff, I personally have never really been in control of any of that. I always try to let the talent do what they do. Bowen kind of gave us the opportunity a bit to to clean up a little bit, maybe pick up on some of the things that we were we were missing. Uh, but like on Rick and Morty, Eric definitely directed the code on that game. And yes, we all have our say, and there were certain modes that I wanted and and certain modes that everybody else on the team wanted, and, and we just let everybody kind of pick and choose. And I've been lucky enough to kind of get to talk to Justin Roiland quite a bit, and he loves the game and asks me questions. And, hey, have you thought about adding this mode? And helped us, like even on the, the latest code update, we got Moon Men in there. And uh, Jermaine was super agreeable to get the song in the pinball machine just to have it in the pinball machine. Um, little things like that. But realistically, across the board, uh, even when it's Scott Denisi or if it was Ben Heck in the early days or, or now even with uh, you know CGC and stuff like that, it, it's a little bit of all of us. It's it's our animator, David Van Ness. It's Scott Denisi. It's Eric. It's Bowen. It's me. It's Fosma. It's my son, Bug, who's honestly still the best pinball player we have. So he kind of knows what he likes to see as far as a rule set goes. And maybe he'll push it a little harder than I will because I'm not as good a player. Um, So he'll want to see a little bit more depth here and there and things like that. But it it really is a team effort across the board. And I've never, I'm just not that guy to micromanage people and say, no, 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 can't do that. You know, we sink or swim together as a team and the best ideas went out. And it's always been that way, and I really hope it always stays that way. You mentioned Justin Roiland had some ideas, and obviously he's a fan of this. But for you to put in different modes and maybe get different assets, it's not just Justin you're dealing with. It's probably not even Dan Harmon. It's likely Warner Brothers. Are they very receptive to changes, or is that kind of every time you want to do a change, you kind of have to go back to the drawing board and renegotiate? Um, They definitely see everything we do. There's nothing in the game that uh, in the early days of just us and Adult Swim, things might have been, uh, for lack of a better term, a little easier. Uh, They had a little bit more trust and we did have a little bit more creative freedom in that regard. With Warner Brothers, it's definitely a process. Every single thing gets shown, everything gets reviewed, everything gets approved. Sometimes things that are in the show get frowned upon even by the executives because they're afraid kids are gonna see this on location, wanna play it and that, that kind of vibe. But yeah, it's always a challenge when you're dealing with a license. You don't always get everything you would like to see. And obviously, talking to Justin Roiland, you know, as show creator and producer, him and Dan Harmon, they have some say in that, but not all the say in that. But so if there's something we really, really want, we can lean a little bit and kind of go through those guys 
and see if it helps. But sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. And, and I understand all of it. It's a little bit different right now because like in the video game world, there are rating systems and in pinball, there really aren't. So some of the studios kind of struggle with that a little bit and how to handle it. They don't understand that games have an adult mode that can be turned off and on. So you have to kind of explain that process and uh, when things will be allowed to be said. If you've heard any of the Scary Terry dialogue, obviously he says the B word a lot. <laughs> it's it's kind of his whole, you know, parody of that 80s horror icon with the, the knives for fingers that they don't talk about <laughs> and what he did. So, yeah, I mean, little things like that will kind of get... It, it draws a little bit of a red flag sometimes with the studios because they don't understand that you can turn that off and on and bounce it back and forth. And is it in the home environment? Is it an arcade? Is it... It, it's a bit of a challenge, but yeah, we get through it. Was there anything that you really, really wanted in the machine that got knocked back? Um, a, yeah, a little bit on the wizard mode. Uh, we had a concept that I don't really want to throw it out there because I'm afraid people will be like, oh my God, that would have been either good or terrible. I don't know what people's reactions are going to be sometimes. But the studio just felt that it didn't kind of fit into the the world so to speak of rick and morty which we thought was odd because i mean he literally turned into a pickle and what we had wasn't any crazier than that <laughs> so but yeah i mean there's there's little things like that here and there but you pick your battles and you know the the important part is at the end of the day the game i think is coming out absolutely fantastic i love the modes that are in it we couldn't have asked for much more asset wise i mean we have all the videos we have custom speech from justin roiland we we've got speech from dan Harmon, and now jermaine clement and i mean it's it, it's so good i'm just really really thrilled with it and and i hope we can kind of keep that role going you know we actually had rob zombie and sherry moon and sid Haig. we had alice cooper we have justin roiland doing the voices of rick and morty and i i we kind of pride ourselves on the fact that we're getting the actual people that have created this world that we wanted to be a part of and make games for and uh, been able to get them in the games for the true fans to, you know, not have to listen to a sound alike and things like that. And and uh, in every instance, we've been lucky to pull that off. And I really hope we can keep that rolling. You touched on people's reactions, and you were given a little bit of relief over the last few weeks because Pinside was down. I don't know how much you go on Pinside and read the forums and take everything with a grain of salt, but they can be pretty vicious on Pinside on the, on the forums. What kind of interaction do you have with the fans, or do you kind of just leave it at bay and go, you know what, I only care about the customers, people behind keyboards. Eh, they can say what they want. You know, it's it's... There's a lot to be learned from Pinside, and, and I think at this point in time, and we've had our ups and downs in there as well. At this point in time, though, I think we're one of the few, if not the only, that'll actually go in there and personally respond publicly to a lot of people that are discussing various things. And sometimes people get focused on little things that really aren't an issue, but it gains traction, and then it just becomes a bigger thing, and and it is what it is. The good that we take away from it is we learn what the actual problems are and what we can do to fix it and make it better. Again, going into the next one, we've spent months just improving so many little things. And a lot of that does come from the pin side crowd and, and some of the noise that gets generated in there. And, you know, like power supply fans, 
you don't think about it. They're in everything. They're in computers. They're in video games. But you don't notice it when you're playing the games or if you're in a busy factory. But I understand if somebody, if it's the only game on in your collection that's making a little bit of fan noise, that's that's irritable. So correcting that and just lots and lots of little things that you kind of take for granted because pinball parts are pinball parts and they've been around for a long time and none of us are really re-engineering you know, like a flipper or a slingshot, that, things that are just super common. But at the same time, there are tolerances and little things we can do better to make it a better experience for our customers. And like I said, we we want to be as good as everyone else, if not better. So we kind of take the noise with a grain of salt when required. But at the same time, if you're deaf to it, to me, you're doing yourself a disservice because you can learn from it. And we definitely put an emphasis on trying to do that. Every game we've done has gotten better. And now, you know, like I said, our focus is to just take all that knowledge. And we had the time and we had a little bit of money to kind of relook at some things and re-engineer some things and just do things a little bit differently and a little bit better. And uh, yeah, I can't fault anyone on Pinside for speaking up if it actually helps us make a better product. And that's what we're aiming to do. The fact that you do acknowledge this, the fact that you do go on and respond to some of these concerns speaks to, again, that honesty, that one word example that you gave earlier. It's we admit our mistakes, we learn from them, we fix them. I believe that was the case in point with early Rick and Morty's that went out. There were some adjustments that were made from the manufacturing side to maybe adjust the upper left shot or things like that. Is that accurate to say? Yeah, absolutely. The whole thing with like, uh, I know what shot you're talking about, like the inner loop, the kind of, you know, upper right flipper to the left. It, it was one of those things that we had played that thing on so many different variants of the white wood and it was never an issue. And when we made that final printed, clear coated, everything polished, the speed picked up and that shot got harder and it began to, you know, you get a little bit of rattle and stuff. And it was... I think I've heard Scott actually say this publicly, so I don't feel like I'm thrown un- under the bus, which I would never do because we love Scott. He had that rail completely locked down in multiple locations, and it actually took like loosing it up a little bit to give that shot a little bit of forgiveness, and it's really been fine ever since. But yeah, it- it's little things like that that you can learn from getting those games out there and seeing that people are struggling with it. And you know, sometimes it's just you're bricking the shot and. And the game's not easy. And other times there is something you can learn from it. So, you know, to me, it's you'd have to be a bit mad to ignore it all and just say, ah, everything's fine. If you do that, then you're in trouble. You know, we, we do have our moments where you get a little frustrated and think, you know, why are people focusing on this one little thing that doesn't really affect anything? But if it's important to them, then it should be important to the manufacturer, because once you stop listening to your customers, then to me, you're already lost. So I guess with like being able to make adjustments, you would have to do a lot of that throughout the Whitewood phase as well. What I'm mm-hmm. kind of curious to know, again, you now being this, let's call it a big manufacturer now, right? I would say you're not boutique anymore. Do you see yourself still as boutique or not? You know, it's still from the inside, it still feels boutique because I know we don't have some of the resources that the bigger companies have. But when you start looking at the numbers... I don't think it is anymore. No, I don't think so. But it's really leading on to the fact that you are creating and designing games and then obviously you've got to manufacture them. 
But what about the the parts themselves? Do you rely on you know the likes of of Pinball Life, or do, are you now building your own parts as well? It's kind of a mixture of both. It's the high school shop class doing it. Let's be honest. <laughs> it's uh, yes, everything's being made at at, uh, at the Benton High School in uh, on the yeah. <laughs> um, no, it really is a mixture. We are the, as far as I know, the most self-contained pinball company on earth. We literally print our own playfields, back glass, plastics. We laser cut our plastics. Uh, we have our own CNCs. We have our own thermal press. We make our own ramp molds. We pull our own ramps. We cut our own ramps. We do our own powder coating. We have our own powder coat oven. We have, I mean, it's ridiculous the amount of work we do in-house. And even our metal, I mean, all our ball guides and stuff is, you know, it's a team-owned thing. It's one of my workers who's incredibly ambitious early, early on, we were kind of struggling to get consistent quality on our metal. And he's like, let me take it over. I'll buy a laser. So he bought a, a metal laser and started doing some forming and metal work. And that's expanded to, you know, several employees and bringing that in house. And it's Benton. Anything that we've really needed that we were struggling to find, we've managed to find somebody that can either partner with us locally to get that stuff made. Like, for example, thicker metals and stuff like that, we we can only do so much with what we have. We can do ball guides and aprons and side rails and all that kind of stuff. But thicker metals, uh, we've got a partner company now in Hazel Green, Wisconsin, which is a town of 1,200 people two miles away that can help us with that kind of stuff. Um, it, it's it, But it really does take a small army of people to do everything that is required. And pinball life has always been a big part of that. I don't think that's a big secret. Terry has several employees that do nothing but assemble parts for spooky pinball. So many of those little jobs that we've kind of farmed to local help has turned into two, three, four people doing whatever it takes to make stuff for us. We're making our own habit trails locally now. Uh, Just hired a a young man basically and set him up with a small business just doing nothing but fabricating habit trails. So I Rick and Morty doesn't have any, so I guess I just gave that away that there's some habit trails. (laughs) Exclusive. Uh, Exclusive. Exclusive. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, it's... It's all a process for sure, and you need to keep those good working relationships. And there's, you know, little things we've done with C- uh, CGC and vice versa that they've kind of helped us with some stuff that we felt we could get better, and they had more sources and, and access. So, you know, using that and and still have a wonderful relationship with everyone at Pinball Life, and hope that never goes away. And and uh, you know, some things it's it's worth reinventing, and other things just if it isn't broke, don't fix it. So. That's kind of always been our, our, our motto is, you know, you, you take the clear path to get to the finish line, which is not always easy. But, uh, yeah, I mean, we depend on a lot of different people to do this. And, and I'm just glad that we do have a lot of really good partners. Well, I think you said, I've, I'm sure you've said this before. In fact, it might have actually been in the video. But I think what you kind of said was, and I am paraphrasing here, but it was effectively because you are in a, in a small town and people care, that's kind of really been a really good success factor for your business. And and I sort of extrapolate that now to when you're saying there's somebody that's now set up their business just to make something for you. And, you know, there's a town of 200 people that have now set up, there's three people doing it. I think you're in a fortuitous situation because of the size of the areas around you. What you're doing means so much more to these people because they are of a smaller scale. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, I would. And nothing makes me feel better. Like 
for example, one employee we had, we hired him straight out of high school. He worked for us for a couple of years, was a tremendous worker. And one day he comes up to me and he's like, I'd kind of like to go do my own thing. If I did, would maybe you feed me a few jobs? And we had a we had a product that he could absolutely help us with. And for sure, I'm going to encourage that. And he was making like some metal art and powder coating it and doing all these kind of really neat things for other industries outside of pinball. And I would lay out files for him and stuff. And And now that kid is providing a ton of product to us. And he's got two of his friends helping him full time. So to see little side projects like that kind of grow and expand. And it also gives me something that I don't have to worry about. So it's one less thing for me to have to you know, put air quotes around control because there's only so many hours in the day. If you if you get somebody like that that you can trust to do a good job, why would you not want to see them flourish on their own and help you at the same time? So that's kind of always been the way that we've operated. And, and again, you know, just bringing people in and making sure that they have steady jobs and get decent pay and, and everything else in our area that really does kind of grow your reputation and, and give you a, a little bit of a it's a nice little boost in your community, for sure. And to see what it's done for Benton, it really makes me happy. Like, I pull into the, the shop in the morning, and that parking lot is overflowing, and there's cars on the street. And I'm thinking, how did we get here? You know, just, it, it, it never ceases to amaze me, and I, I never take a moment of that for granted. That is not how I thought the story was going to end about that kid who uh, decided to leave, and they've never found the body. <laughs> no. No, no, we still see his body several times a week. He oh, comes okay. in right. and drops off some stuff and, how you doing? And, you know, grabs a check and takes the next batch and off he goes. And it's it's just, it's a good thing. Congratulations, by the way. A few more Twippies for Spooky Pinball just recently. And I got to tell you, the one that I really liked, I knew you'd get call-outs. I mean, that was a given. In a tough field, too, I might add. But when you had what Justin did, it's just off the charts. I mean, you can't compete with that. But the one I really liked was the topper. You know why? Because it was free. Spooky <laughs> said, here, you get a free topper, not $1,000. I'm glad you won the Twippy for that. Thank you. And that was all KT. That was her. You know, and, and, and it's kind of funny, and I don't like to poke fun at anybody, but there had been some really goofy, expensive toppers coming out. And my wife's like, I know what we should do. We should get everybody a free one. And I'm like, what are you, crazy? That's going to be... Wait a minute. Yeah, we can do that. <laughs> <laughs> and... Yeah, the goodwill we got from that. It was expensive, don't get me wrong. I mean, it's not like it's the most brilliant topper ever designed, but it's interactive with the game, and it's cute, and it's fun, and it does something. And, uh, you know, when the portal's lit, you know, because the topper's moving and lighting up, and and it's kind of fun. But that was all her idea, and, uh, yeah, I'm really proud of that. You know, and it was, we owed it to the customers of that game. I mean, come on, 750 games in four hours for a company our size, and you think we're not going to be nice and do something a little bit extra special. I'm really, really glad that people took it for what it was. And obviously... You didn't have to do it. We didn't have to do it, but, you know, it was... But you asked that kid, you said, yeah, you can leave, but you got to make us 750 <laughs> copies before you go. <laughs> That's not far off the mark. Um, yeah, it's. I, I'm glad it was received the way it was, and I, I don't pretend to believe that it was the best topper, but the way it was phrased was favorite topper, and that, that apparently won a few people over our way, and, 
And yeah, thank you everybody who voted for us on the Twippies. You know, we typically we get buried by the bigger companies in those award shows, and that's perfectly fine. We know they have a lot more games out there to play than we do. And, uh, you know, we just kind of do our best. But this year, we actually, I mean, let's face it, Eric and Guns N' Roses dominated, deservedly so. But uh, that little company from Benton actually held our own there. And we we won a, a handful and got a lot of finalists, I, which I didn't know that, you know, Jeff was going to send us this huge box of, we were a finalist in like every category. So, I mean, for us to kind of pull that off with a team our size and a company our size, I was incredibly proud of our guys. I think really the the real sign of success for you. Sure, it, it was nice to get some Twippy nominations and obviously some awards, but really, I think the real mark of you being a successful company with a successful product is you didn't get a Reach Around award from us. <laughs> he probably doesn't know what that is. I do not know what that is, but it sounds interesting. <laughs> we did our own awards. They were the Reach Arounds. And let's say they're kind of almost the reverse of the Twippies. Uh, okay. <laughs> so what we're saying is if you didn't get one, you've done well. Okay. okay. So like what, I'm reaching around grabbing somebody's wallet or what am I doing here? Sure, sure, sure. Wallet, yeah. A, a couple of loose coins, if you know what I mean. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, then I, 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 I take very kindly the lack of reach around awards. <laughs> That might be the best endorsement for us not doing it again next year, Marty. I just heard it. Again, I want to go back to that honesty thing because I have yet to find anybody, and I'm looking. I really am. Somebody who can say a bad word about Spooky Pinball or the Emery family. I don't know what you've done to those people. They don't exist. But the point is everyone roots for Spooky because, I assume because of that honesty, and everyone wants to see you do well. You're the this little company in Wisconsin that takes care of the town in many ways, but just... You put out great products and it's fun to watch the progress. And it's kind of the model, I think, that a lot of companies should be looking at if they want to get into this game, which is not easy. And there's a lot of bumps, but you've done it right. You've done really well, Chuck. I appreciate that more than I can say. But uh, I mean, we definitely have our detractors. They're out there and that's fine. Everybody is entitled to their opinion. And, you know, sometimes I kind of feel like the baby face and wrestling, like you get to the point where people start to, you know, they want the bad guy to come out and kick your ass every once in a while. <laughs> but our fan club members, our fans or whatever you want to call them. I hate the word fans. I just, it sounds goofy to me. They're incredibly loyal. They're incredibly kind. If somebody has an issue, they typically come straight to us because they know we'll take care of them. We answer our phones all day, every day. Uh, we answer our emails. We have multiple ways to get service help. And it's been a long, steady, slow growth to kind of build that trust, I think. And all the good that has come out of Alice Cooper and Total Nuclear and Rick and Morty is, like I said, I don't want to waste that. And that's what we're doing on the next game to make sure that everything is even more reliable, better built. I'm absolutely honored and thrilled to say that in the entire run of Alice Cooper, we had to replace one play field. And in the entire run of Rick and Morty, we have replaced zero. Uh, I can't tell you how much time, money and effort we spent into making that statement true. So it's things like that that you build on and you also just keep improving everything around that play field as well. The last few final round episodes, we've been talking about manufacturing and what standards they consider acceptable. And you just gave the example of having to replace one play field on Alice Cooper, none on Rick and Morty, no issues. Other companies are having some difficulties with play field issues. 
and we haven't really heard what the kind of I know it's a case by case basis. There's no general statement you can say it has to be this for it to be flawed or whatever. What's the process for you when a customer says, I think there might be an issue with this? How does it work? And there are customers out there, not of Spooky, but of pinball in general, that are concerned that they're spending a lot of money on a product and they want some assurances that this product will work, there won't be any flaws in it, and such and such. Um, in, boy, that is a, uh, that's a tough one. It is, and I apologize because it, it, I can't think of a spooky example, so I'm asking not exactly the manufacturer I want to ask, but but it is a question of maybe a future spooky owner. Here, I'll, I'll defend all the manufacturers at once because, and it sounds like a cop-out, but it's really, really not. When I started in pinball and started dragging games home and stuff, they were all operated games. There were very, very few people that had ever bought a new in-box game and drug it home. And those playfields were, or the games in general, were pretty solid, but nothing was judged as minutely as it is today. Not a single thing. I mean, you look at like the edging on a, a Williams back box, the Cadillac of the industry, so to speak, and they were just raw wood. They were rough and and playfields. You know, people can say they were indestructible back then, and they must have been using more money and better. No, they weren't. They trust me. None of us are cutting corners, at least not in Spooky's case, to save a nickel in any way on a playfield. I. It is so much more expensive to have to replace something after the fact than it is to just get it right the first time. And all of us are honestly being held to a much higher standard because it's a home-driven collector's market. Any little bubble in a decal, any little chip in a play field, any tiny little thing is seen as a detriment, and this is going to cost me to lose value on my game. And we get told this when it happens. And I understand it. I am that guy, too. I have a few new inbox games, and I'm fortunate to be able to even say that uh, i went several years without buying anything you know just because everything goes back to the company and it's been lucky enough the last couple of years that i've rotated some of my older games and you know i i have a jersey jack i have a guns and roses i have a cgc monster bash i have a stern elvira you know and i'd be lying if i said we didn't look at them all and kind of compare and see what they're doing better what we're doing better and you know there's things that it is a different ball game now, and it, it's going to continue to be that way. So there's no point basically complaining about it as a manufacturer because this is your market and you either meet their standards or you probably are going to have issues. So realistically, when somebody comes to us and they say, hey, look, I, this doesn't, you know, of course, you try to calm their nerves and explain to them, you know, that this is either a natural piece of the wood doing this or, you know, this is how you can fix it. But if it's something that really bothers you, we're going to take care of you. We have had maybe two games ever returned in eight years, and we've always found a way to satisfy somebody. It, you know, if it's an electronic piece or a, a play field on, you know, we had some issues on TNA, and we we owned up to it and and uh, did everything we could, and we still do that. So, I mean, our warranty still goes for home use one year on everything in the game, and sometimes that's tough. It, it really is. You know, if a, if a plastic gets shipped or something, we typically send you another one for free. 
But at the same time, it's what has allowed us to build that trust with our customers. And even if some, you know, in that instance, if something goes wrong, say an electronic part fails or something, a CPU, a battery dies, this is just weird stuff that happens that we really don't have any control over. We don't make the CPU, we don't make the battery, but a brand new one may have a dead battery two weeks after we send it out. This stuff has happened. Customers are always going to be more accepting of your answers and willing to work with you to fix the situation if you're being honest and just doing everything you can in that regard to take care of them. And, you know, that's I think that's a a little bit of a trust factor that we have managed to build over the last eight years. And, and, uh, you know, we'll continue to do so. Charlie, I can't thank you enough for coming on the program because uh, we kind of missed the podcast. I mean, you've gone silent on us for crying out loud, but I guess you've been a little busy too. So I know a lot of people were looking forward to you coming on the program and you certainly didn't disappoint. I'm looking forward to what comes out at the end of spring or maybe in summer. I know it's going to be another winner for Spooky. Well, thank you. I, I I'm very, very excited for people to see what we're up to. Uh, we've got a few tricks up our sleeve. We certainly didn't skimp on anything that's going in the game, and I'm glad you miss us, Jeff. I appreciate you guys having me on. You don't have any silly questions to ask me? People usually ask me some weird, obscure horror question that I have to try to answer on the spot, or something odd like that. I'll give you one. What's a horror movie that everybody loves that you don't? Um, that's a tough one. Okay, uh... Uh, I enjoy the first Saw film, but probably not half as much as everyone else, and I don't think the 115 sequels needed to be made. (laughs) (laughs) Probably a good answer. You were saying before about Spooky being like sci-fi and horror. Sure. Surely Event Horizon would make a great pin. Marty, is this like uh, one of your favorites? Yeah. Okay. Uh, It's not one of mine. (laughs) Well, there you go. You just answered the question. What is Event Horizon? That's not the one with Lou Gossett Jr., is it? No, it's got Sam Neill in it. What's Event Horizon? It was a horror movie set in space. Yes. I haven't seen it in years, to be honest, but I didn't. I, it didn't thrill me the first time I saw it. I'll have to go back and watch it again. It's been a long time. Any other Australian uh, actors in horror movies, Marty, you want to ask about? Well, Wolf Creek was a horror movie. Wonderful movie. There you go. Go back into some cool Aussie ex- exploitation films, because I can do that. You can wow. go back and like watch Patrick or Outback or Oh yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've we've certainly got a, a very interesting take on cinematography, I'll tell you that. The the movies that were being made in the seventies and eighties in Australia, the exploitation films are absolutely marvelous. Yep. Yeah, because they were still you ever very watched the documentary, not quite Hollywood. No, I'm looking that up now. Go look it up. It's I, I actually bought a copy. It's so entertaining. But it's literally about how like the Australian government was helping fund all these exploitation films back in the 70s and 80s, and they were just using it to make the most raunchy, wonderful, wild, weird <laughs> stuff off the government's dime, basically. Wow. Okay. Yeah, like, like they refer to it as exploitation. Okay. I'd never Absolutely. heard of it. It's a whole genre upon itself. Quentin Tarantino is a huge fan. Yeah. Uh, as am I. I think I've seen most of them in that, that documentary. So it's a blast. I have to talk to Marty every two weeks. I now have to watch a bunch of Australian films too to get caught up on this podcast. Come on, Charlie. I mean, I've done my homework. All right. I mean, you well, know I'm lucky enough that our animator is, is uh, from Adelaide. And he is as much into horror and science fiction as I am. So him and I get along very, very well. David, right? Yep. Yep. My next door neighbor. Oh, wow. Really? I thought, why, why do I think he lived in Texas? He does. Part time. 
Okay. But he built a house right next to ours here in Benton, so. All right, here's an obscure horror question from me. I'll give it my best. It's more of an opinion than anything else than a question, but it is in the form of a question. What horror movie needs to be remade? What horror movie hasn't been remade? <laughs> Event Horizon. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> it's a horror movie in space. See, well, I don't know. It, it's tough to beat Alien for a horror movie in space. That's pretty top-notch. When I was young, one of my favorite, and to me it was a horror movie, but they did remake it, and I was so mad when they remade it. I was in love with the movie Fright Night when I was a kid. I just thought it was, Chris Sarandon was a great vampire. Roddy McDowell was spectacular. It's funny. It's great. And then they remade it, and it just didn't do it for me. Is there one out there that, okay, we could we could see this being done? <laughs> I actually gave uh, David, our my neighbor, a Fright Night poster for Christmas, an original Framed it for him and everything. I was so nice. Uh, he loves that movie. I do too. A movie that needs... See, the problem is they keep remaking good movies. And like, you don't need to do that. If you, They need to grab movies that weren't great the first time, but had a good premise and make it better. I don't know. Night of the Lepus. You know, the one with the giant bunny rabbits? That's a good yep. one. That should be remade. Um, <laughs> I would like... It, the Terror from Beyond Space, was literally remade into Alien. The premise is identical. Uh, stuff like that, you know, some of that 50s stuff, John Carpenter taking the thing, which was an absolute classic. And at the time, everybody was like, leave it alone. It's good. And then he made something that everybody hated on the first day, but absolutely loves today. And it's a masterpiece. Stuff like that. Go back and grab some of that stuff from the 40s and 50s, not, you know, the 70s and 80s. We all remember that stuff. We've all seen it. It's it's too fresh, in my opinion. And that's, I don't know. Okay, and the last thing, without giving any spoilers away, thumbs up, thumbs down, what would you think of the new Godzilla vs. King Kong? Ooh, I'm very proud to say that I have seen every Godzilla film released in the States, be it Toho or United States films, since 1972. And uh, this was no exception. It was the first movie I saw in the theater in over a year. Mm, It was good. It was good. (laughs) They broke a lot of stuff. They got together. I left there happy. Uh, you know, there were some implausible things in there that uh, sci-fi nerds kind of lost their minds over. But I watched him fly backwards in, you know, Godzilla versus the Smog Monster and didn't question it then. So why why would I question him drilling a hole to the center of the earth with his breath now? <laughs> Spoiler alert, just for those that haven't seen it. Spoiler alert. Well, that <laughs> I doesn't was trying- really affect the plot, but... I was trying to go back and watch Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla, and I couldn't find it anywhere. So I got a the one with the okay. I can tell you that what what's on the poster. I think they were on the Twin Towers at the time. So that has to be what late seventies. That was the U.S. release poster version of Godzilla versus Megalon. Spoiler alert: They were never anywhere near the the World Trade Center. I know. <laughs> you know why they did it? King Kong. You know, De Laurentiis King Kong did it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla was done in twice in the 70s, twice in the 90s, and he also appears in a couple other films. So Mecha, Mecha G has been around a long time, but I was very excited to to see him in the new film. I didn't love the look of him, but it, it was it was good that they threw that in there as a nod to like the hardcore fans, and, and it served its purpose. It was a fun movie. Before you give any more spoiler alerts, uh, we're going to say so long. And thank you again for your honesty. Thank you for coming on this program. I appreciate you guys uh, having me on and being so darn nice to me. No worries, man. Thanks very much. We'll speak to you probably in about a year's time. 
<laughs> Whenever I'm, I'm always available. Now that I'm podcast free, I, I, I have more time to talk. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe in a couple of months. Sure. So there you go, everybody. There was Charlie from Spooky Pinball. Jeff, what did we learn? He is too damn nice. And uh, how nice is he? He couldn't even admit that Godzilla vs. Kong was a piece of shit. I watched it the other night. That is two hours of my life. I will not get back. And I've done fuck all in 14 months. <laughs> okay, that does seem quite bad. I've, I've heard mixed reviews about it oh. too. I think if you're, if you're not a fan of the genre, you won't like it. If you're a fan of the genre, you'll enjoy it, but you won't necessarily love it. That's the consensus I'm getting. I've got to be careful when I'm talking to you because I told you how bad Wonder Woman 1984 yes, was you and you were like I'm not watching it now so I still haven't seen it because oh. of that all right Godzilla versus King Kong I don't know why I was expecting more I was hoping it'd be more like the book there is no book I'm just <laughs> <laughs> it's a leave your brain at home movie and it was, yeah it's fine it's just okay here's the good thing if it was just Godzilla fighting Kong, home run, greatest movie of all time. It's the shit in between. You're like, just get to the fighting already. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Okay, so what you're saying is a long setup for a payoff that's not worth the investment. That's the great thing about being able to watch it at home is, you know, fast forward, fast forward. There he is. All right, let's slow down. Let's watch Yeah, okay. It. So I watched that two-hour movie in, I don't know, maybe 30 minutes. <laughs> Kind of like people listening to this podcast. Yeah. So, I don't know if you know about Zack Snyder's Justice League or whatever it is. I saw it. You've seen it? Yep. And it goes for, what, four and a half hours or something? Yep. Did you skip through any of that or did you watch all of the four and a half hours? Took me three days to watch it and I watched about an hour and a half and then another hour and I was saying to my son who had already watched it, I said, I don't know, is this thing get any good? He goes, trust me, it gets great. And and it did pay off in the end. It certainly was better than the original, but four hours, that's a long time. And you know, some people say two hours for a podcast, that's a long time. But don't speed things up because we have important things to say, especially when it comes to our sponsor of the week. Cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, Dogecoin, Doggycoin, Dogecoin, I don't know. It's the way of the future, not just to exchange for goods and services, but for wise and wealthy investing. Who doesn't like making money? Do you think we'd pollute our podcast with any shitty sponsor that takes away from our quality content? Hells no. Then it's time to put your money where your mouth is and invest in the next best thing, Final Round Coin. I like the name, sounds legit, but what if I still want tangible currency, something that I can hold in my hands, but still have the benefits of big gains with cryptocurrency? Final Round Coin does it all. Those other cryptocurrencies have the nerve to use coin in their title. There's no fucking coin with them. We give you an actual coin. You know that coin that ejects from Safecracker? We have stolen, I mean, we've acquired a few of those. How about old Papa tokens? Yup, converted to Final Round Coin. Remember those old peep shows in New York's Times Square? <laughs> Who doesn't? Whatever happened to those tokens? We've got them. Really? I used all mine, but... Oh, you know what? There's also my personal favourite. Canadian Quarters. So many final round coins to offer, and the time to buy is now. Look, we haven't figured out the details of trading or transferring. Do we have the technology? Do we have the security? No. We're just a couple of guys trying to get ahead of the game. Trust us. You mean, get rid of some old coins in our possession? Shh! Quiet! Buy your final round coins today. Email us with your name, address, e-transfer, and PIN, and we'll take care of the rest.
Marty, I don't know how many fans we have of Final Round, but I do know pretty much everyone that listens to the show, I believe, has a reach around some way, somehow. Yeah, I think you're you're about right. I mean, how many were there? 16 reach arounds, 16 fans, maybe a, a couple that we gave out, even though they're not fans. So I think you're probably on the money there. Try to get them to become fans. That was kind of the, the key. But there are some people that even when they have their own podcast, even when they're on the Pinball Network, even when they're probably on more shows than anyone else, I think even more than Zach, if you think about it, with the midweek show, with the correspondence, now here... They still need more, so they buy the Give It A Try Reach Around, and that's why we have a special guest from my home country of Canada. Craig Bobby joins us right now. Hello, Craig. Hey, how you doing, guys? Thanks so much for having me on. Is this going to be another episode where you are now going to gang up on me for how I speak English? It might be. You know, two Canadians against one Aussie. Uh, Nothing can go wrong there. We're we're all colonists. Let's say (laughs) that we've got that in common. Just, we are a colony of convicts. I'm not sure. We're still mourning Prince Philip, I think, is what we're all trying to say, right? Yeah. We are. are. Yeah. Poor Philip. Mm. I'm not even sure the Queen knew he was still alive, honestly. Oh, come on. (laughs) Too soon? Was it too soon for that one? It is. (laughs) She watches the crown. I I think it was probably saying it was, he was only two months away from getting a letter from his wife, (laughs) congratulating him on his hundredth. Probably the last time she spoke to him. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Too soon. It is too soon. Anybody else over the age of 95 we can make fun of uh, before we get started? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, me, Jeff, you're close, aren't you? (laughs) I wish that I'd get a vaccine. Anyway, that's another side story. All right, Craig, we do know you from the midweek show. We know you're the Stern correspondent. How do you get to be the Stern correspondent? Well, you know, I I was the only one who applied, funnily enough. I thought I was going to be last in line. Turns out I was the first and only. So, (laughs) so yay for me. No, you know, back when they were doing Special Win Lit, and that was one of the first podcasts uh, I got listening to, and I really liked their format, and I was trying to think of a way that I could participate in this hobby in some way you know, beyond actually buying a machine or playing. And so I was, um, after listening to it for a few weeks and they were doing sort of an open call, I thought, well, what the hell? I'm just going to send them a thing and surely I'm not, they're not going to pick me, but I'll just send it in anyway. And at first I wasn't going to do it. I was like, nah, I'm not going to do this. And then my wife was like, no, you got to do it. And I was like, oh shit. Okay. And turns out, uh, you know, I was the only one that applied. So I got it. So what the hell? <laughs> so sometimes it does pay to just show up, you know? <laughs> Marty, we got to teach this guy on how to grease his own wheel. You know, you don't say that you're the only one. You say, you know, there were, I don't know how many people applied, but obviously I rose to the top. I was the best. They said, this guy's got something. Let's get him on. Yep. Well, you know, Canadians, we're brutally humble. We're like to a fault, I'd say. So we're always playing ourselves down a little bit to the rest of the world. Is that actually true, though? Because I know you do have a reputation for being very apologetic and very nice. That's a reputation. In in my experience, um, I'm not seeing the same thing. (laughs) Sometimes it does skip a generation, the the (laughs) niceness, you know? (laughs) So, So then obviously that's then translated to you doing the correspondence for the pinball show. How did the midweek show come about? Well, it was really two things. The first thing was that Ken Cromwell, of course, left to join Jersey Jack. So that was sort of a natural pause in everything as everyone sort of decided to to do a little bit of a reset. And in that process, 
I started thinking, you know what? A lot of times I felt like, you know, we only have ideally, and, and Ken was a bit more of a stickler on this than um, than good old Zach is. Zach's a little more easygoing as far as uh, what we can do in terms of our correspondence. But Ken was pretty much like, didn't want much more than a minute and a half, which I get. And that was about it. And I started to feel that I had more things to say after a minute and a half <laughs> than, than the format really allowed. And so... Once Ken left, it was really an opportunity to say, mm, what can we do more on the show to either let the correspondents, you know, have a little bit more of a say week to week, or should I just go and start my own show? And I was pretty nervous about it because I wasn't sure it was actually that I could actually do it, you know, that I actually have more than I thought to say, <laughs> you know, like you always have it in your head, you could, you could talk way longer. And then when you get the mic in front of you and you're like, Ugh. <laughs> Yeah, if you could hurry up this answer, that would be great too. Ken Cromwell just sent me a note and just was hoping you could, let's go, let's go, let's go. No, Dennis Creasel wants to hear more of you. Go ahead. Exactly. It all got started that way. All the guys were very, you know, Ken especially was very encouraging to give it a whirl and Zach was as well. So I thought, oh, what the hell, you know, I'll, I'll put an episode or two together and see and see how I like it. I was very nervous about the editing because I know you guys have talked about it on your show as well. The editing is the most brutal part for me. I enjoy doing it. But then when you're listening to yourself over and over again, oh, God, it just gets to be a bit much after a while. It's still tough. I have to like take it in chunks to make it manageable. But beyond that, once you get going on it, you know, I really enjoy the creative part, as I'm sure you guys too, in terms of being able to speak and, and write stuff and just kind of be able to do whatever you want with the platform. It's a lot of fun. So what is your... Session over. <laughs> <laughs> Great answer. Nice and succinct. I like that. So what is, what is your history with pinball? And, and do you have machines at home? I currently only have one machine, which is the Avengers Infinity Quest and Premium. And, you know, as I've been saying, it's actually nice to have one machine only. I mean, trust me, I'd have a basement full of these things if I could. So I, I often, you know, my mouth is salivating as I go onto Facebook and other social media and see the, the beautiful arcades that people have set up in their, uh, in their basement. But just having one title has really, sort of caused me to focus and think, I'm only going to have one, so I better choose one that I'm going to like. And so I forced myself to really take my time. And um, and I've been really enjoying getting to know, you know, not only the game, but the internal workings of the game. And uh, I was particularly nervous at first about getting the thing open and getting inside this thing. I've done a few mods now. I've had to make, make a few repairs. And I'm becoming much more comfortable getting under the hood of this thing. And I, as that keeps encouraging me and telling me, like, everything can be replaced in the thing. So don't be intimidated by breaking a plastic or doing something crazy to it. So I've I've been pleasantly surprised that it's it's held my attention and and continues to do so. Was this your first new inbox? Yes, so it was my first new inbox after doing a uh, you know a lot of research and it's been a lot of fun. I'm really glad I chose the Avengers with what Keith Elwin's done on this game. It's been a lot of fun. I know you said before you, you, you're kind of a bit anxious. Was that what it was like as your first new inbox to put that kind of money down? Were you sort of having doubts about, oh, God, is this going to be the machine for me? I'm only going to get one machine? Exactly. I was sweating buckets, you know, trying to think, am I going to like this thing when I get it home? Am I going to be, you know, the first time I turn it on? Is it, you know, am I going to be too intimidated by it? 
I mean, I overthought a lot of this, right? And at the end of the day, you know, I realized that the community is strong enough out there that I can, you know, if I get it home, get it set up, and I realize it's not for me, I can move it on without taking too big a hit on it. And but it's been the exact opposite. It's been a real thrill to have it. And, you know, interestingly, listening to you guys, too, you know, initially was really helpful just to get a little deeper into the hobby from that point of view, because I remember hearing your first episode where you guys were talking about, you know, encouraging everyone to go out and play in a tournament. And that's exactly what I did. So I have you to thank for partially to thank for this ongoing addiction. (laughs) Now, Craig, I remember playing you. And I think you talked about it once on your midweek show. And even going back when you talked about picking Avengers, you hummed and hawed over, will it be Turtles, will it be Avengers? And you settled on Avengers. But you went to a tournament, and I remember seeing you in Scarborough, Ontario, Bluffs. Pinball. I think it's one of two times we've met, the other time being uh, the awarding of your reach around. But the first time I met you was a tournament. And I don't even know if the Pinball Network was up and going then. I don't think it was. I think you were just doing the correspondence. That's right. You're, you're exactly right. I knew you because I've been listening with, with to you and Marty. And yes, it was the first time that we had we had met. And you are now my pinball nemesis because you I remember every single ball. First ball, I actually had you. I was like, what game? No fear. It was no fear. So I've told this story, so I won't bore everyone, everyone again. But I was so nervous at that tournament. It was really, I'd been to one tournament prior a few weeks earlier, but it was really a house tournament and it was only, you know, a handful of people. So it was my first kind of big, bigger tournament where there was, how many people were there, Jeff? Was it 50 ish? Can't remember. The, they're all a blur. Yeah. <laughs> it's so long ago. But I was extremely nervous. And the first game of the tournament, who am I drawn with but Jeff Teolis? And there was two other people who we were doing sort of, you know, four-player games. So I was very nervous. And then when I found out this was actually, you know, after I beat you on the first ball, and then I stood back, we were watching someone else play, and we started to sort of do a little small talk. And then you revealed to me that it was your, there was actually a game that you had owned for many, many years. That's the way Jeff gets into your head, isn't it, Martin? Like, he, he tells you these things to throw you off your game. Yeah, he does. Here's the thing about No Fear. I see a lot of people play that game and you have a choice of what skill shot you want and you'll get it. You just pick which one you want. And I see people always go for award lock, award lock, and they think multi-ball is the be all and end all. Not No Fear, not in match play. So all I did was the super cross levels, I think it was. I can't remember what it's called. It's been a while since I've had that game. But basically by the third ball, you're guaranteed to get payback time, which is 25 million a shot. So if you can go up the big left ramp and start doing some upper flipper loops, 25 million, 25 million, 25 million, I'll take that every day of the week. And it should put me in a, a good place for match play. So yeah, I had nothing, maybe the first ball, nothing the second ball. Hey, Craig, step aside, son. Let me show you how this is done. And I'm thinking, I got him. I got this guy, right? <laughs> nope. <laughs> uh, well, that's tournament play for you right there, isn't it? And right there, once again, we have proven that the humble Canadian theory is all bullshit because it's not like I haven't bragged once or twice about a a tournament victory here or there. And I'm not. That's all I'm going to say. I'm going to leave it at that. But Marty brought up a good point, too. He was talking about the games and the price of games. Yeah, so I'm just curious to know when you were saying how it's such a big purchase for a new inbox. Interestingly, I've been... Looking at the market over the last couple of weeks, well, probably last couple of months, probably even a year since COVID happened, and in particular, the secondhand market is going a little bit crazy. And what I've also noticed is 
the resale of new inbox machines is pretty crazy at the moment. People people are putting three to four thousand dollars and on on a machine that they're just they're flipping it's still in the box and they're reselling. What sort of effect does that have on you when you're thinking about a new inbox? Do you, do you feel secure at least you're getting the retail price from the distributor? My rationale for getting a new inbox was exactly that. I started looking at the secondary market because initially I was like, I, I'm not putting, I'm not putting up the money for a full thing. So I started looking at the secondary market and it was so high that I felt like I wasn't going to get a game that I was going to be happy with long term, as crazy as it sounds, even with a game that might be you know, five to 10 years old, even some of the older titles that are 20 years old, the secondary market is extremely high. So I just thought, you know what, I might as well just go all in here and spend, you know, 30% more for a new inbox title and get something right out of the box that's brand new. No one's played it. And I get all the benefits of all the great new designs and LCDs and, and the RGB lighting and, and don't have to deal with other people's headaches. So that all went into my my rationale for getting it. Absolutely. And, you know, since I've had this and I've sort of sat back and I've thought about the amount of money that I've got in it compared to other hobbies and the amount of time that I'm spending on it, you know, the initial price tag is steep. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, I haven't spent a dime on it since, well, a little bit here and there in in a few uh, a few little mods and stuff like that. But I've put on you know, well over 1600 plays on this thing over the last four months. And there, there's a lot of hours there that I've, that I've put in. So yeah, when you look at your previous hobby, you mentioned that you buy a pinball machine, you can probably sell it for almost the entire cost, but your old hobby, you know, once that blow is gone, it's, it's gone. I mean, that's, there's nothing to show for it. Well, an online porn masturbation, it's really, you know, it's not what it's cracked up to be. And there's porn online now. I've been rewinding all these VHS tapes. Okay, I'll have to check this out. But Marty does have a good point. It makes sense to buy a new game because of the value it will retain for the most part. You're probably overpaying for the older games, but the bigger picture is, and we've seen price increases across the board, and we know that parts are hard to come by, and we know COVID and this and that. I would assume the pinball companies are seeing the price of the older games go up and up, justifies raising the prices of their new inbox titles. Yeah, and they're not dummies either, and they're they're in it to make a buck. And the other thing I noticed when I saw that tour of the Stern factory that Jack Danger did a while back, I was blown away by the amount of hands-on labor that went into this thing. And it started to make more sense to me once I saw the incredible number of steps that it took to put this thing together and the number of man hours that I'm sure it takes, you know, again, not to justify their, you know, the prices that they're charging these days, but there's a lot of manpower that goes. This is not something that is an automated roll off the line machine. And it's a complicated beast and not to mention all the development time, the licensing. So Again, the sticker shock is high on it, but I just try to look at it in terms of the value that I'm getting within the hobby itself in terms of the time I spend on talking to other people in the hobby, the podcasting, and my own personal time playing the game and enjoyment. To me, it's worth it, but it is a lot. And so I can see that there is a ceiling there for folks. And you know, for some folks, that ceiling is just a bit too high, which is too bad. It'd be nice if they were all $1,000 machines and away, away we went, but we're not living in 1965 anymore, you know? Yeah, look, I, th- I think the other, the other effect it has as well is I think it makes location play more 
appealing as well because as you said, new inbox have gone up. Secondhand market is now absolutely crazy. So, and, and I've had this conversation with a number of people here that used to buy a lot of machines and they don't now because they just say, well, it's too expensive. I'd rather go on location. Now, here in Australia, we are all but back to normal. We don't even need to wear masks anymore. And obviously, the rollout of the, the vaccines happening really slow, but not really necessary because we just don't have a lot of cases. So, location play is really important. And it sort of brings up a, a point that I want to ask, I guess, both of you, because I just saw the, the Pinball Hall of Fame has just opened up. They've just done a soft opening in their new location on the Strip. And I'm just sort of keen to, to know what people's thoughts are on what makes a good location and whether you'd been to the old location of the Pimble Hall of Fame. It's definitely a destination to go to, whether you're new in the hobby, whether you're a collector, whether you're a competitor, whether you've been in it for a while. It's good to see the variety and it looks like we're going to see a lot more with what they've got on the strip now. People will tell you, oh, you know, this game, that game doesn't work. Well, there were a bunch that did work and it was good to see all the different games with a collection that huge, you're going to get that anywhere. It was a volunteer basis too. Let's not forget that. I'm definitely looking forward to going to the Pinball Hall of Fame, the new one on the Strip. And I agree with you, Marty, about location pinball. What I like in location pinball is the variety, the atmosphere. The most important thing for location pinball for me, though, is the games do have to work. They don't have to be pristine. They don't have to be mint. They don't have to be super clean. As long as they play and flip, I'm good with it. You know, and the flippers don't have to be as strong as maybe they're at home. That's okay. As long as everything works, you can adjust. And again, I'm so envious of what's going on in Australia. I saw Ryan C's picture at Moondog. And I mean, there were just so many people there. The uh, Jesse J, by the way, came fourth in her tournament. Yeah, I don't know if you know that. Finals, well done. Her first tournament. Yeah. So going to location pinball is is certainly a good way to get into this hobby. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that for me playability of the machine is the most important. I don't care if it's if it's dirty and it really hasn't been cleaned. As long as the, the flippers are strong enough, all the mechs work, the targets work, I'm happy with that. The thing that, that drives me mental is when machines aren't leveled. I would rather have a mech not working, but it be leveled. You know what I mean? It, it just, and that's an easy fix. You're right. It's such an easy fix, but it just doesn't happen. All that often. You know, the only thing that frustrates me about frustrates me about location play. The main thing is not being able to hear the audio on these machines very well. Typically, when it's busy and and noisy, you know. But it really, for me, being on location is just being around friends and being around other people when you're at these locations. And like you were saying, Jeff, the variety of the games that you come across that you don't see either in your personal collection or see very often out in the wild. So I love going to different locations. I was really disappointed. When, you know, one of the many disappointments, obviously, when COVID broke out, I was visiting Vegas for a while, almost yearly through different conventions and work opportunities. And the last time I was there, I actually put off going to the Hall of Fame because I was thinking, well, I'm just going to do it next time. I was a little tight for time. So I thought, okay, I'll do it next time. Of course, there was no next time because of COVID. So I am itching to get out there again and to visit their new location because I think it looks fantastic. And they were, <laughs> they were extremely brave to embark on that given uh, what the world has uh, was entering but I love location play and I and I miss it uh, for all all the reasons you guys have talked about in terms of just the atmosphere the variety of games being able to hang out with your friends 
I can't wait to get back and appreciate these places even more, the ones that make it after this time. Well, there's also news of another big, and I mean big, pinball location. So, this is the Pinball Museum in Banning, where they have Arcade Expo and where Indisc, which is now what, the Pinball Open? So, there's rumours now that it might be moving to Palm Springs, which mm. I think would be would be... Of a of benefit because what I've heard about where they're located in Banning, they're only allowed to open very sparingly, like I think twice a year, maybe maybe once a month, if that. So I think for them to move to Palm Springs, maybe go to a more commercial location means a it's more accessible because it, Palm Springs is obviously bigger than Banning, but also it can be open a lot more. Oh, I hope that's true because. I love the current Museum of Pinball in Banning, no question about it. I love Indisc and everything they do. But if you can get to Palm Springs, where there's an airport, where there's a lot of other things to do, I think that would be great and a lot more accessible. But that's a big undertaking. Do you see how much that, how many millions that's going to cost to do? Yeah, but, but right now, they can't really monetize what they've got at the moment. As I said, they can do Arcade Expo and they can do Indisc and I think one more event. I think so I think this they're open three times a year. They can't get their money back. So it, it's a bit of a money sink at the moment. Whereas at least mm. if they do invest in a commercial property that they can open whenever they want, they can start getting money back. That brings me up to a different point and I want both your opinions on this. When you go to location pinball, when you go to an arcade, there are usually two different types of arcades. There's the kind where you pay an hourly rate, play as much as you want. There's locations that Craig and I are are used to in Toronto called Tilt that have this. Modern Pinball used to have that when they were open. There's the new one, High Score Pinball Arcade in New York State that does hourly rates. Or there's just the coin drop. For me, I like both. I think when I first started playing, I liked the hourly rates because you could play a variety of different games. But you always had some patrons that were maybe hogging a machine for a while and you could never get on it. Yeah. I think it comes down to the difficulty of the machine. So, for example, if it was Sunshine Laundromat, I would prefer it to be an hourly fee because they are set up tough. There's no extra Mm -hmm. balls. There's no... Well, maybe there's extra balls, but there's no free games. And so you burn through money, whereas that would be good as an hourly rate. But for me, and I would say for other people as well, so I'm not just big noting myself... I can last quite a long time on one credit, so I would rather have coin drop in that case where machines are a bit easier. I like doing the either the hourly or the pay one price, play play as much. And the only reason I say that is because I like supporting the location, so I don't mind paying a little bit more in terms of a per game. And I also just like relaxing once I'm in there. So I, I just like to, I just want to pay my whatever it is, 20 bucks, whatever they're charging to kind of play as much as you want. And just have a beer and chill out and sort of consider that as part of the night out and kind of be done with it. Fair enough. The main thing, whatever your location does, whether it's hourly rate or coin drop, we certainly want to support these. And it's nice to see in the States and in Australia, they're opening up again and we're a ways yet here in Ontario, Canada. We're talking about something you had to go through in Melbourne. Uh, We're looking at possible curfews now for Mm. eight o'clock at night or nine o'clock at night. So... It's not a good time for uh, location pinball here in Canada at the moment. Not not fun. But here's the other thing. Here's a really smooth segue. Jeff, you ready for this? Sure. So, if we can't go out and play, therefore we have to play at home. But what if you could play at home but still be connected to other people playing at home? That's impossible. How? Well, 
<laughs> no, I, I say this because I, I recently streamed Guns N' Roses. All Guns N' Roses machines came with Scorbit pre-installed. And I didn't really know that until I got to the end of the game. And they said, right, now you can put your name up in Scorbit. I'm like, what? I know all about Scorbit, but I didn't realise it had been integrated with Guns N' Roses. And it is so much fun to be able to finish a game and then go to the scoreboard and see how your score competes with other people that you know and also the world. I think Scorbit's fantastic. And yeah, that's standard for the Guns N' Roses machine from Jersey Jack. So exciting to see that partnership. And I doubt it's an exclusive partnership. I don't know that to be true. If I were Scorbit, I would kind of want to get it out there as much as possible for all machines. So I I really don't know and I don't want to speculate, but yeah, it's that connectivity is great. And we've heard, and maybe Craig knows because he is the Stern insider. If Stern's close to that, because we've heard George Gomez talk about how they want to have that connectivity. And I would have thought it would have happened by now. Maybe they're close, but I'm surprised with COVID and everything that we haven't been able to get there. Even if it's something as simple as using Scorbit. I thought going into COVID that they were super close to doing this. And then since then, I think these companies, as much as they're getting titles out right now, everyone's, especially in the early days of COVID, where there were a lot of lot of shutdowns in the US, these guys were just hanging on by the skin of their teeth and just trying to get games out the door. And I think a lot of stuff got sidelined. And then they were swamped with just a sheer number of orders. And they're just trying to keep up with the backlog. You think they were hanging by the skin of their teeth? I don't know about that. Well, I think early on, you know, again, in the first few months, these guys were shut down a lot. Like, I, I remember when I ordered the Avengers back in the end of August or right around Labor Day. And I can remember, like, week in and week out, biting my nails. because I thought, okay, they're going to get, there was all these shutdown warnings. Then they did get shut down for, I want to say, a few weeks at least. They got the state of Illinois shut down completely. And Stern had to shut down because they weren't a, a central business. And then they opened up. And then there was always these rumors of them shutting down again. So I think for them that they were just trying to keep up with the sheer number of uh, orders that they were getting. But it could also be the matter of you ordered a premium and they do the pros and then the LEs and then the premiums. Is that right, Marty? As I, I sort of mentioned on a, on a previous episode that I know somebody that is still waiting for their Avengers premium. So yeah, you're right. Premium is done last. We're always the last to go. You know, we're always the last in line. First in, last out. But I do think some of these things got delayed because, you know, their attention got shifted. And I think initially it was, can we get keep the factory open because we're being told we have to close? And then it was, can we just keep up with the sheer demand that the hobby is now placed upon us? Of course, no one's going out and they want to now focus and there's all this money sloshing around because no one's going, going on vacations or doing other stuff. And everyone's sort of focusing on their own personal entertainment. So pinball has been the beneficiary of a crazy time in the world, you know, which has been fantastic. But it's kind of ironic, you know, that for so many decades, it's been sort of on the ropes. And it took it took a pandemic to propel it, you know, to its highest heights, really. Okay, Craig, people are starting to get to know you, whether it's here on Final Round, certainly on Midweek Show, definitely as the correspondents, occasionally shitting the bed at No Fear Pinball Machines. But we need to really know more about you. So it's time for you to give us two truths and a lie. And Marty and I will try to figure it out. And you can play along at home too. Here's a truth. So you heard about my experience with Jeff 
in our first matchup at the first big tournament I played. In that tournament, although I did not win it, I placed very well. In fact, I placed 20th out of 75. Okay. Although Avengers was my first new unbox pin, I actually did own another pin. It was actually a Gottlieb by the name of, I believe it was called Atlantis. Okay. okay. Well, one of the reasons why, a big reason I purchased the Avengers Infinity Quest was because it was actually Little Flipper's favorite title at the time that was available from Stern. There's the three statements, two truths and a lie. Marty, do you want to take a guess? Let's summarize those. So you placed 20th in the tournament out of 75. You used to own Atlantis by Gottlieb, and you picked Avengers because of Little Flipper. Those are the statements. Marty, what do you think? Um, I'm going to go out and say that I think that you, the finishing 20th out of 70 people is the lie. I think the other two things are true. I'm going to call your bullshit as well, because I don't remember 75 people being at bluffs. That was the flag. If you said 20th, I would have bought that. But 75 people, that would be like sardines in there. That would have started COVID. I'm going to say, oh, so I think we got him. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are too good. I thought you could see the sweat pouring off me when I was, but we're not on video. So it's not, <laughs> that's not it. And it made sense that little flipper, your daughter would love something like probably even turtles, but Avengers as well. Although, give her a few years, Iron Maiden, look out, and then you're in deep shit when your daughter starts getting into that. Exactly. Yes, and I did own Atlantis back in the day. Uh, it was actually my first pinball, and the, believe it or not, I bought that. The thing didn't even have legs. They were actually, or they were wooden legs, and it was like crooked. It was not a good first used title. I think but I sold I like, it for like 200 bucks. <laughs> I like that EM, though, because you shoot the two drop targets at the same time. You get 5,000 points. On the left-hand side, there's kind of a weird sling on the left side. I find Atlantis a fun, fun EM. It was funny because my first wife had given me that as a, as a birthday present one year, and it was right after I had seen, I believe at the time, Indiana Jones had just come out. We went to some bar or some pizza place, and there was the brand new Indiana Jones, and I was so wowed about this, and that's all I was talking about. Was, oh my God, I love this pin, you know, I'd love to buy this pinball machine, but I, I think even back then, in the 90s, the thing was like, at the time, it was like five five grand or something like that, which was you know an exorbitant amount of money. And so all I was talking about was this Indiana Jones thing. And so my my wife decided she would surprise me for my birthday and and found you know this old pinball machine at a garage sale and thought I would love it. And I can remember like you know ripping off the wrapping paper and I was just stare I just stared at it like why did you buy this hunk of shit. <laughs> But it was a great game. I got it going. I fired it up and it was actually quite endearing. You know, it was no Indiana Jones, but it was still a lot of fun for what it was. Yeah, I hadn't seen this machine before. I'm looking at it now. It's got that that sort of bagatelle section like Centigrade 37 and I think some other games that Gottlieb did at the time on the right hand mm. side. Hey, it looks fun. There's a bagatelle? It's a very, it has a, you know, it's got that typical kind of late 60s artwork on it and... It's got the what I like to call the waterfall on the right-hand side where, you know, you try to hit the lit lights between the two lanes, but near the end, you got to give it a bit of a nudge. Yeah, the bagatelle. Because, you call that a bagatelle? Yeah. A bagatelle is like catacomb, isn't it? Yeah, it's a similar sort of thing where it's sort of just dropping down and you can really okay. only nudge it. Yeah. You I thought what? bagatelle was Italian for reach around. <laughs> no, I think you'll find it's a, a French breadstick. Okay, I don't think Atlantis, definitely not Avengers, 
None of these games made the most overrated Battle Royale, but we are into our second bracket, the other field of 32. And I got to tell you, that first round was unreal. It was tough picking some of these games, Marty. Absolutely. And we just literally, as we've been recorded, we have now just clicked over to round three of the second battle. The interesting thing was that there were a couple of real sort of interesting heads up machine versus machine that I just didn't know which way they would go. But would you like me to go through some results? I'd love it. So if I can think about some things that I thought were going to be really tough, Wizard of Oz versus Champion Pub. I thought I didn't know which way that was going to go. Who do you think won that? Well, that's a perfect example of a game I didn't want to vote. Champion Pub is my favorite novelty game ever. It's just, it makes me laugh. I've always wanted to own it. I hear it's possibly a nightmare. But if that thing works, I get such a kick out of the game. I know it's simple. It's not exactly the greatest competitive game, but I love it. And then Wizard of Oz is such a trendsetter. It changed pinball with Jersey Jack coming on the scene. And I know people, oh, I don't like wide bodies. I don't know who won. I don't even remember who I voted, but I think I flipped a coin because I didn't want to pick either. I would say the fan favorite of Wizard of Oz had to have won that battle. I don't want to count out Champion Pub, you know, just for nostalgia reasons, but I think for all the reasons that Jeff mentioned in terms of its uh, trend setting and it, and it really was a game changer back in the day when that game came out. I got to think Wizard of Oz. We're not looking for winners. Yeah, yeah it's overrated. <laughs> it's which one, which one do you think is more overrated? And you're correct. It was actually Wizard of Oz that got through. (laughs) So it was relatively close. The next one I couldn't work out either way. And they're radically different games. This is Tales of the Arabian Nights versus Monsters. And uh, it was Tales of the Arabian Nights that got through. Just. I mean, that was fairly close. There were others that were pretty much a walkover. Oh, no pun intended. But Walking Dead versus No Good Gophers. No Good Gophers sailed through. And I guess it's probably because people look at Walking Dead and say, well, it may be overpriced or maybe whatever, but it is still a really good game. My favorite battle, and Ian Harrower commented on this, he also felt the dilemma of, I have to pick one of these? This really hurts, (laughs) was Ghostbusters versus Whirlwind. Two games he loves, two games he owns, and he's got to call one of his babies ugly. Who won that one? Okay, so the winner of Ghostbusters versus Whirlwind for what is considered more overrated was Ghostbusters, and only three votes was the difference. Whirlwind's the first kind of game that gave us modes, or that I really noticed about modes. And, you know, it certainly set the bar. It had the incredible upper right flipper shot. Ghostbusters certainly looks great. The flipper gap and the flying off the left-hand side, the rail jumps, those are the things that drive me nuts. I'm fine with the code. I think Dwight did a great job with the update. But to me, Ghostbusters just reeks of overrated. My vote went for Whirlwind, just so you know. So really, so then it came to round two. And these were, I would say most of the pairings here were close. There was, you know, Scared Stiff really was really probably the outlier here that was um, quite... It it was more overrated than X-Men. And the other one really was Big Bang Bar. Uh, was significantly the clear winner. But the, the others were quite close. Wizard of Oz versus Tales of the Arabian Nights. It was tra- Tales of the Arabian Nights that got through this time. And Theatre of Magic versus No Good Gophers. That was one I couldn't pick which way it would go. Who won that? No Good Gophers. Lawler's taking a shit-kicking in this uh, <laughs> in this battle royale, yes. I've noticed. <laughs> yeah, he is. Bless him. 
was there any Willy Wonka matchups there along the way? We only included games that weren't being produced right now. We didn't want to. We didn't want to crap on any games that they're trying to sell. Just give us a few years. We'll shit all over them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the other one that I thought we, I wouldn't know which way it would go is um, Simpsons Pinball Party versus Tron. Jeez, they're both great games, but I, I'm going to guess Simpsons will win that because it's such a love-hate game. I know so many people that think it's the greatest, and I know others that, like, get rid of this thing. It's too stop-and-go, forget it. Simpsons had to have won that. Yeah, it did. It did by about five votes, so relatively close, but yeah, it was the winner. What other ones did we miss? Red and Ted, so Roadshow versus Elvira and the Party Monsters. Elvira just narrowly won that one. Scared Stiff versus X-Men. Scared Stiff one. Ghostbusters versus The Hobbit. Mm. Wow. Oh, I, I'd have to say The Hobbit. I mean, as much as I despise Ghostbusters, The Hobbit had to have won that. That would be my guess to you, The Hobbit. Yeah, it did. Not, not <laughs> by a huge amount, but yeah, so. You say Hob- it like you're about to cry. Yeah, it did. We had to put the dog down. <laughs> Look, I, I just don't. I don't think either of those games are overrated. I think they're misunderstood. As much as I love The Hobbit, and I love The Hobbit, like I'm a huge Hobbit fan, huge Lord of the Rings fan. I was so disappointed after playing that game. I think it was the wide body that really that threw me. Hobbit is a gorgeous machine, and I think it shoots okay. It just there's not enough to do for me. And I know there's a lot of modes and all that kind of stuff, but it's just the same old, same old, same old. By the way, Marty, I've already got our next Battle Royale picked out. You don't even know about it. Oh, okay. No, but before we do, so there's just there's just two more heads up to go through. So Big Bang Bar versus Total Nuclear Annihilation. I'd say Big Bang Bar. Yeah, it was an easy win, that one. <laughs> Again, part of the thing about being overrated, too, is is it overpriced? Because that would then rate it a little higher. Correct. You know, this is interesting because Pinside was down while people were voting, too. They couldn't check the charts. They had to... Yeah. Ooh. It's that factor. Hmm? Uh, and the last one of this round was Cactus Canyon versus Funhouse. Does Lawler take it in the teeth again? I would have voted Funhouse. I'd say for me, yeah, it would be Funhouse too. Yeah, I am not a huge fan of either. Um, I think I picked Funhouse, but it was actually Cactus Canyon that got through. Wow. That's right. So, I mean, by the time this airs, this thing is probably going to be over. But the next round is Tales of the Arabian Nights versus No Good Gophers. That's going to be a tough one. Elvira and the Party Monsters versus Simpsons Pinball Party. Again, I don't know which way that's going to go. Scared Stiff versus The Hobbit. And Big Bang Bar versus Cactus Canyon. Interesting. We're recording this early. I think Big Bang Bar is going to do uh, quite well on this <laughs> Battle Royale if, if winning is the goal. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right. We do these things and other fun events on our Facebook page, which you should be joining. We're also on Twitter. Final Round Pin. We're on Instagram, Final Round Pinball. And you can always email us, finalroundpinball at gmail.com. And we did receive some interesting emails. They're always fun. So we had a guest on episode 29, Todd McCulloch, great, wonderful NBA player. And David Lee wrote us. And Todd, if you're listening, I know you are. I'm just throwing this out there. Maybe Todd's not listening, so you could just say you didn't hear it. Hi, Jeff and Martin. After listening to episode 29, a thought has been rattling around in my head. You guys know Todd McCulloch, and Todd is a pinhead and was an NBA player. 
I didn't know that. And Todd might know the right channels to get me in touch with current NBA players. Todd, if you could just uh, go to your Rolodex and help David Lee out, that would be wonderful. But he he mentions that ever since Lauren Gray's first episode of Backbox Pinball, uh, the question was, who would you like to play pinball with? And for him, for David Lee, it would be Steph Curry. I think you're probably with a lot of other people. By the way, Marty has no clue who Steph Curry is. He plays for the Golden State Warriors, one of the greatest three-point shooters ever. That's not true. I know who Steph Curry is because he is my son's favorite player. And when I went over to the US, might have been the first or second time, he was like, I just need you to get me any Steph Curry merchandise. So I did. So there you go. You're wrong yet again. (laughs) I apologize. Mm -hmm. So you should. I apologize just like a true Canadian. Marty, (laughs) the rest of this email goes on to say that maybe a miracle can happen Who knows? But Steph Curry, if you're listening, reach out to us. David Lee would love to uh, play you a game of pinball once everything is uh, fine COVID-wise. So thanks, David, for writing in to us. Thanks, David. And we had another email. This one came from Nick. And I see Nick on a lot of the Twitch streams and chat. I think I even saw him on Melbourne Silverball just recently. So, Well, yeah, he he actually has his own um, Twitch channel as well. It's Keeley, K-E-Y-L-E. Check him out. He is... One of the nicest people I've ever met in pinball, easily. So he was talking about, we were talking about rubbers, as we often do. And he was saying- Was Ryan on the show? <laughs> probably. Uh, so he was talking about the, the different types of rubbers. And he said, this is from my experiences. The default rubbers from Stern will be great for home use, but you'll get grime. Although a lot of it's carbon from coils, you'll get grime deposit. They absolutely won't last on location. In a busy arcade, they'll snap within a week. They're actually not pure rubber. They have some kind of coating on them. You'll see they look shiny. They bounce and grip, but sadly, they won't last. So, Titans are okay. They don't bounce like the real rubbers. They're 10 to 20% bouncier and can be really annoying when new. Over time, they become less bouncy than real rubbers and sadly not okay. Once they're old, they can make a live catch a little too easy. Mostly applies to black Titans. It says, super bands, love them or hate them. I used to hate them. I'm actually not that much against them now since everyone has colored titans. Super bands are basically the same materials as your watch straps or shoe soles with various degrees of chemicals. It's the same stuff. They tend to overbounce low speed balls and deaden the bounce of high speed balls, which is why most people hate them. Uh, they can't wrap their brains around them. The worst of the super bands, though, is the grip and the amount of spin they create on the ball. Where the ball rolls down on the flipper from an inland feed, you can flip it off your ball is spinning off like crazy. Add Mr. Sheen to the playfield and your machine makes no sense. Once again, as they get dirty... What? Add Charlie Sheen? What? What's Mr. Sheen? Is Mr. Sheen not a thing? Around? Mr. Sheen is like a furniture polish type thing. Have you heard of that, Craig? No. Mm. I, I thought you were talking about Charlie Sheen there for a minute. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, once you add Charlie Sheen to your playfield, the machine makes no sense. Winning. It says... Once again, as they get dirty, the spin isn't so bad anymore, and the bounciness tends to average itself. Super bands on locations, if the machines aren't cleaned by maniacs, are okay. Operators like them because they last forever. All this, of course, is affected by the tightness of the rubbers and flippers. Freshly installed, they may not have stretched perfectly. That's fascinating to me. Yeah. All of that. My take on it is, I would rather keep the default rubbers on and replace them when they break. That's actually, you know, because a couple of my rubbers... It's so weird saying are starting starting to crack mostly on on my Avengers. It's the upper third flipper because you typically you brick a lot of shots off that uh, off the end of that flipper. And so I've developed a couple of nice cracks in that upper flipper rubber. And so I'm thinking the same thing. I'm just going to get, you know, factory rubbers again. 
just to keep the same feel of the game, I guess. But it is amazing how many people buy new in box games and then change so many different things on the games. We've heard Bruce Nightingale from Slam Tilt talk about getting a new game. And I think one of the first things he does is change the coil stops, rubbers. I mean, we're not even talking about just modding up games. We're talking about putting on maybe it's carbon based balls. Yeah, a lot of people do those. I think that there's varying degrees of quality in new machines. The balls I received when I bought my Guardians, I still have them. They're not in my game. But if you look at it, it looks like a golf ball because of how many divots there are. I had yeah. never seen that before, but I know because there's a magnet in the orb, multi-ball, you can only put in certain balls if they have magnets in the game. And obviously I think it's the carbon-based ones. So it'd be nice to be able to plug and play without having to switch a lot of these things. But if you're going to play a lot of it, probably switching them out is a good idea. So thank you, Nick, for that email. Ben Madison wrote, you were talking about Bond, James Bond. I think the movies would be modes and you would have sub-modes to work with for each villain. Then spend a mode playing cards or have a card theme area in the table. There's lots you could do. And I think Ben would be a fan like I would of a James Bond pinball machine. So thank you again. You can write to us at finalroundpinball at gmail.com. Craig, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, it's been good to get to know you. And, and we love hearing you on the midweek show with the correspondence. Do you guys have like a battle between the correspondence? Like, are you better than Dr. John or do you like shit all over Matt or... Dennis likes to pit us against each other. I think he's trying to create a little bit of a internal rivalry, you know? So we've ganged up on Dr. John quite often because, you know, the Aussies, they're an easy target, let's face it, right? Yeah, yeah, you know, I absolutely agree. <laughs> yeah, and what is he? Just a surgeon. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> What's he ever done? <laughs> but uh, no, it's there. The guys are a ton of fun. It's the reason why I've I've continued to do the the correspondence segment because these guys are fantastic and they each all have such great personalities and it's uh, it's just a ton of fun being a part of that. We enjoy what you do. Thank you for your news pieces. Thank you for the midweek show and uh, thanks for supporting Final Round. I'm glad you've got your reach around and uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Hey, it was a pleasure to be here, guys. I really appreciate it. And uh, I can't wait to um, enjoy this reach around for years to come. <laughs> timeless. Absolutely timeless. Take care, buddy. Thanks, guys. Thanks, mate. I think that's enough for one day and one week. Oh, I guess really two weeks. A fortnight, if you will. I still just can't understand that fortnight is just not a regular thing. It really isn't. It'd be like people going around saying score. How old are you? I'm uh, two and a half score. Yeah, okay. So, are you saying that it's old-fashioned or it's never been used? It's just not in this part of the world. Is it all the time in Australia? All the time. Yeah, and how's that working for you? Oh, well, another shot at the Aussies. Well done. You know I love that country of yours, don't you? Yes, I know where we're headed with this. No, and let's move no, away. No, I'm Back up the truck. Beep, beep. We're not going. I'm not getting you anywhere near close. You have an obligation to our fan that you don't talk about anything related to something that happened in Australia. Just walk away. Just. I'm not going to say a word. Trust me. I want to tell you my origins of loving Australia. It has zero to do with pinball. It has to do with my honeymoon and being on a cruise. I think there were 2,100 people on the cruise, 700 of them Australians. And boy, did they have a good time. And I had a good time. We all had a good time. Made friends for life. And then, of course, through pinball and yourself and Ryan C. and others that I've met, Dr. John, Stacy Borg, all these good blokes. There's something about it. I don't know whether it's the Canadian-Australian Commonwealth connection that we talked about earlier, but... 
it's just it's a good time and and especially <laughs> with how responsible your country has been uh for this pandemic it just makes it all that better so anyway i enjoy these little chats every two weeks it brings me a little closer to what i like to call the way it was <laughs> okay you know the other side of this pandemic if you will yeah 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 and we we are kind of on that side now really mm. um as we said before, we don't even need to have masks at all now. So it really is back to normality for us. Coming up on a future pinball profile, I'll tell you right now, I talked to Danielle and David Peck. So they're coming on. Yeah. And they're in New Zealand, not too far from yes. you. Those Kiwis don't even know what the pandemic is. No, they because they went into hard lockdown before anybody did. Um, and their policy right from the outset was to eradicate the virus up front, and it worked. Ah, uh, someday. We'll get there soon. Yeah. But we'll be back here in two weeks. Marty, have yourself a great one. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, and thanks, everybody, for listening. Speak soon.